The Reminiscing in Time podcast is brought to you by the Indiana University Jacobs School of Music Centennial Committee and Office of Communications. Join the celebration online at music.indiana.edu. I'm John Christopher Porter, and this is Reminiscing in Time from the IU Jacobs School of Music. In this episode of the pod, A View from the Top, I pass the mic to JCDR Executive Director of External Affairs, Melissa Dixon, to lead a friendly conversation among three former members of our administration. Dean Emeritus, Charles Webb, Associate Dean for Administration Emeritus, Henry Upper, and Associate Dean for Instruction Emerita, Mary Wennerstrom. Let's get started. Friends, we're in for a real treat today because the history of the school is with us. Charles, thanks for being with us this afternoon. My pleasure. Charles, when did you arrive at the IU Jacobs School of Music, and in what capacity and what meaningful way did your role evolve? I arrived in Bloomington in 1958, very newly married, and I came as a doctoral student in piano performance. I had studied uh, with a wonderful teacher in Dallas, Texas at Southern Methodist University, and um, he continued teaching for a while after his retirement, and I wanted to stay with him. But then, uh, one day he suggested, you need to work on a doctorate if you are going to continue in music education, and the place for you is Indiana University, in Bloomington, Indiana. Well, I have to say, the only school I had ever even heard of outside of SMU was the Juilliard School that everybody knew about. And uh, so I said, well, if this is what you suggest, I've been taking your advice all along, so we will go to Bloomington. So I made an application, was accepted. We came here, and uh, Kenda, my wife, who is now deceased but was very much a part of all of this, um, she was finishing her undergraduate degree, and I was just beginning work on a doctorate. So it was uh, an exciting time for me, and uh, things just evolved from there. (laughs) So what happened next, Charles? Pretty big step. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I was, uh, I first uh, came to know the then Dean, Wilfred Bain, uh, because at that time he conducted a large choir called the Choral Union. We don't have that now, but it was a com- combination of all of the smaller choirs. And they did the big works like the Ninth Symphony and Verdi Requiem and things like that. Uh, and I auditioned for the accompanist for this choir and was accepted. So. I began an immediate, at least, association with the person who was the dean and had been the dean for a while. And uh, that gave me a chance to to learn something about the administration. And one day, Dean Bain said to me, um, the person who is occupying the position of manager of musical attractions is retiring. Her name is Flora Walker, and she was Uh, an employee before that of Columbia Artists in New York. So she had had some activity with this kind of thing. So uh, I began playing for those rehearsals. And then one day Dean Bain asked me to stay a few minutes after the rehearsal. And he wanted to speak about um, Flora Walker's position and that it was going to become vacant and uh, why wouldn't I uh, enroll in that and uh, learn more about the administration? So, yes, 
I did that. And um, then things just kept developing. <laughs> Ultimately, uh, he uh, spoke to me about being an assistant dean and then uh, associate dean. And upon his retirement, there was a search committee. Dean Bain was, uh, he didn't have in mind a particular person to succeed him, but he wanted me at least in the mix there. And ultimately I was named Dean, so. All good things in all good time, Charles. <laughs> you were Dean for 24 years, and I'm always reminded how the shoulders that we stand on today. Mary, same question. Well, I came here in 1957, which I think was before either Dean Webb or Dean Upper, um, because I came as a freshman student, a freshman piano major. Um, seems to be a lot of piano in this administration. Um, <laughs> and I was from East Grand Rapids, Michigan, and I had won a contest in Michigan and had then gone to an Indiana State contest. and. Professor Naj, who was on the piano faculty at Indiana University, had heard me and sort of recruited me down here. So I came in 1957 and got a bachelor's in 1961, and then um, decided to go into music theory because I knew I wasn't going to be a performer full time. And uh, I enjoyed music theory and I started teaching right away my first class was at 7.30 in the morning, um, <laughs> which they have gone back to actually in this time of the pandemic. Uh, classes are now again at 7.30 in the morning. Uh, and um, the theory faculty was happy with my work. And after uh, a few years, after I finished my master's and was working on my doctorate in music theory, they decided to offered me a job on the faculty, which was a little bit unusual, but then um, Dean Bain was doing things a little bit unusually. <laughs> Didn't care too much about, <laughs> about tenure and all those <laughs> sorts of things. So in 1964, I joined the um, music theory faculty and started teaching graduate courses right away, which was again, um, pretty unusual, but... Uh, and in 1967, I got my PhD in music theory and then um, continued on in the department until, in fact, 2016 when I retired. So I was um, on the theory faculty for a very long time and uh, got um, tenure and promoted to a full professor and then became chair of the theory department, and I was chair of the theory department, I think, from something like 1979 until, um, until I became um, an associate dean um, when um, Gwen Richards became dean in 2001-2, in a rather tumultuous time of the School of Music. Um, <laughs> and uh, I think 2002 was my official time as, as um, becoming the associate dean for instruction, which I didn't really want to do at the, at the beginning, but um, I did enjoy administration, and I certainly enjoyed being chair of the theory department um, for many years. And then um, I was um, in that position until I retired in 2016, as I said. So there have been a lot of changes, and um, I've seen it from the point of view of a undergraduate student and a graduate student and a <laughs> beginning faculty member and a continuing faculty member and a, an administrator and um, so uh, it's been a I think 59 years as my association with the, with the school <laughs> which is um, almost two-thirds of, of its existence as a school of music so um, it's been a very long journey. It has, but I know that our alumni that are listening especially are so glad that the journey that you've taken, <laughs> well, so for, rather, I, the journey um, that you've taken. I did get a teaching award in, in the early 1990s, and at that point we had to put together a dossier of all my student rosters, and um, 
we went back and looked at all of them, and at that point, I'd had over 12,000 students um, <laughs> on, my, on my, my rosters. <laughs> and, and, so, and I'm going to say to our listeners, she remembers what each and every one of you got. <laughs> well, I, I actually have the, the grade books for my entire teaching career, and I still have them. And so some people write to me even now and tell me they were in my class and in the 1970s or the 1980s or whatever, so uh, we can we can check them all out. <laughs> That's great. That is, so, that is so great. Okay, Henry. Well, I first came to Indiana University in 1962. Prior to that, I'd studied at SMU in Dallas, and I received uh, both a bachelor and master's degree there. I decided at that point that I needed to work on a doctorate. Uh, there were only a few schools in the country uh, in 62 that actually offered a performance doctorate. So as I looked around, I saw several opportunities. And then I began to think, well, maybe I could even do something like uh, go to uh, Princeton and study on the side with Robert Costadesu, who happened to live in Princeton at that time. And luckily, one of my uh, former uh, advisors and professors said, Henry, if you want to teach piano, don't get your musicology degree at Princeton. Get a performance degree. So I had known Charles for one year in Dallas before uh, he and Kenda came here. And so I gave him a call. And I said, what's it like at Indiana University? And he said, it's a very good place to be. Well, that was it. I said, okay. I'm going to do it. And uh, I always think about the fact that I arrived in Bloomington, downtown Bloomington, in January by Monon Railway. Uh, as I looked around at the ice on the street, I said to myself, get that degree and get out of here and don't ever come back. Well, the next year, Solicia and I married. And from 1962 to the present, we were away from Bloomington for only four years and have been ever since, and we love it. When I arrived in, in 62, Dr. Bain and Dr. Wells were really well on their way to the school that they had both envisioned. Uh, there was a first-class artist faculty. Uh, there were ensembles for study, and as they had said, uh, to show the world what the school could do. There was a really good academic music component. And that in itself uh, told me that it was a different kind of school. Uh, to have a performing musician with awarenesses beyond their instrument was unusual in the world of training performers. Uh, and pardon me, uh, that kind of trade school mentality for uh, uh, musicians existed at conservatories and really did not exist here. And there was an opera program which was totally unique to scholastic programs, and uh, uh, that made a different kind of music school. Uh, one other uh, kind of quick thing I would like to say, and that is that uh, this large university setting in a small town put us all together constantly. We were together morning, noon, and virtually night, practicing, going to class, and the faculty was around also with us. There was a second floor lounge uh, that was exclusively for piano majors, we thought, uh, and it was frequented in the evenings often by the whole Curtis music group. Uh, professors who arrived here together with Sidney Foster, Abby Simon, George Bolette, Zayla Skolowski. And with the students and with them in the times we spent in that lounge, I almost felt sometime like I learned more than I learned probably uh, even in the classroom. Thank you so much for that. You know, I, I have to say, as an alum seated here with all of you, I'm, I, I'm just going to start to feel a little bit struck because <laughs> the evolution of the school 
I mean, it's, I, I guess you could say it's unsurpassed, really. But the foundation of the school, the reason why it has the success that it has, the foundation that I'm sitting here with today, it, it's incredibly strong. So thank you all for that. Charles, some serious members of the profession have graced our campus. Can you talk about some of the professional heavy hitters that have been <laughs> on the Jacobs School campus and the meaningful experiences had by our students as a result? Well, probably the, the most famous would have been our association with Leonard Bernstein because uh, <clears throat> we were very fortunate to, uh, to have that experience early on. Uh, I can remember getting a telephone call from his first assistant, a man named Harry Prout, who uh, had been with him for, for quite a while. But Mr. Prout called me and said, uh, Leonard Bernstein is uh, in what he has called a trough of composition. And uh, it's not going too well for him. And he feels that if he could be on a university campus where there were students who in the evening could take music that he had written, bring it back the next morning and play it or sing it for him, that uh, this would inspire him to do the kinds of things that he feels he's capable of. And we're wondering if that place could be Bloomington, Indiana. Well, it didn't take me long to make a decision there and say, of course, we would be thrilled to have him. And uh, what would this cost us? And I can remember to this day Harry's response, the only thing it would cost you is just if you have a place where he could stay said, no stipend, no, no stipend, he doesn't need that. So we made arrangements for that to happen. It happened, and he, uh, he came, and in his usual ebullient manner, uh, he was into everything, uh, composition, piano performance, vocal performance, all of the elements of, of music making, and um, it, it, it were, I, I was wondering at the beginning, how can this work? First of all, will the students really be serious about learning something overnight? Well, uh, we had enough who could and wanted to that uh, we never had trouble finding people who would perform this music and work with him, make suggestions. And he was very open about, yeah, tell me, uh, you like this? What, what does it need? This kind of thing. And so it was um, a great learning experience and a, and a musical one, too, for us to have somebody of that caliber just right on our doorstep, so to speak. Incredible. And that probably was uh, the single most uh, inspiring kind of incredible experience that we had with someone who came from the outside but immediately fit into our, our mold. We can't let the moment pass without acknowledging the role you played in our relationship with the Jacobs family, in particular, David Jacobs, Jr. Can you share yes. with our listeners <coughs> the beginnings or evolution of that meaningful relationship? Yes, I can. I'm happy to do that. Uh, first of all, uh, he came as a freshman student, not knowing anyone, but his parents were both graduates of Indiana University. They knew something about the School of Music, and he had expressed an interest. So he came, he auditioned, he was accepted uh, as an organ major. That's what he wanted to do. And uh, so that went on for several months, but then in the spring of that year, first year that he came, uh, his organ teacher uh, came to me and was uh, one of our star both performers and teachers, uh, he came to me and he said, I have a student that I know knows you because he talks about singing in your church choir. At that time, I was conducting the First Methodist Church Choir. And he talks about coming over to your house and doing some babysitting and helping. And what I'm here to tell you is uh, he's not going to make it. So uh, I'm 
was a little shocked, but okay, I knew that he knew what he was talking about. But then he said, and I'd like for you to tell him. Okay. <laughs> so, okay. Okay, Clyde Holloway. Yeah. <laughs> but all right, that's what Clyde wanted. So I, I uh, David was over in his usual capacities, and I thought, okay, this is the time to do this. And I didn't know, but what he might just stalk out, you know, if you don't want it with me, I don't want you, something like that. But I told him as nicely as I could what Clyde had told me. And his reaction was not what I expected because he said, well, I've been here for almost a year. I have heard every organ student play. I know that I'm not in this caliber. I cannot compete with these students. So, he said, uh, I think I'll go down to SMU. I've heard you speak about your work there, and I would like to get an English degree. Well, my first reaction was, David, first of all, if you're going to study English, Indiana University has a language program that's as good as any in, in the country. Why would you, well, it's too big here, and I... I think I'd like a smaller place. So, all right, that's what he did. He went to Dallas. He enrolled at SMU, was accepted there in English, got a degree. Several years after that, in 2001, his mother asked him, as she usually did, uh, what would you like for a birthday present this year? And he surprised her and everybody else by saying, I'd like for... Indiana University School of Music to be named for my father. And uh, in recounting this, David said, my mother said, David, what would that cost? I don't know that I could afford anything like that. And David said, and I told my mother, it's true, you don't know what you can afford. But you'll either do this or give it to the government. You, you decide. Well, she decided and uh, made a gift. Uh, I can remember David saying, now what would that cost? I said, David, I have no idea, but I do know who to ask. So I called the president's office. Miles Brand was the president at this time. And um, he'd said, well, we only have one other school that has a name. That's the Kelly School of Business. We sold that too cheaply. And I'm, I'm going to say that to name the School of Music, which has been called number one in quality, will be a minimum of $35 million. So I told this to David, and he said, well, shouldn't be too difficult. So with that kind of a response, I thought, okay, we're on our way. <laughs> you know, Charles, he, he credits you with the relationship that launched him into the human that he is today, that somebody showed such faith. Well, that, but that, that is misplaced because the person who really had the most influence was Kenda. And uh, she, I don't know how many times she invited him after we would, he always sang in the choir. He was very faithful coming to choir practice and to the church. And uh, so it was, it was a wonderful relationship with the whole family, really. But it was Kenda who was just sort of mothering him in a way that he appreciated. And uh, so when it came time to make the decision, the, the gift ended up being $42 million. And uh, of course, in a sense, the rest is history. Yeah. <laughs> it became the Jacob School of Music. It became, became the Jacob School of Music, that's right. Small gestures, <laughs> grand expressions, my goodness. Shameless plug, Charles. Yes. What are you reading right now? 
And Not what that. would you have? What would you have? <laughs> <laughs> what have you recently authored that we all should be reading right now? Well, <laughs> you're holding in your hand the book that I recently authored. <laughs> I had help with that. I, I, it certainly is not all my work. But uh, there seemed to be a, a need or at least a desire to have something that would catalog the development of the School of Music and especially during these 24 years that I was, was dean. So I tried to put together something that would tell that story. And um, uh, it, I must say I've been very gratified at the response that we've had. Uh, a lot of people have read it. I have appreciated the fact that it seems to have a good response and that people are learning things about the school that they didn't know before. Absolutely. I'm, I've read your book. I think it's wonderful and that everybody should pour through it, but I'm struck by the other, notab other notable relationships. There have been many notable relationships held by you and your family for the benefit of this school and the thousands of students that it has served and that it will continue to serve and I, again on, on your very strong and stable shoulders we stand thank you thank Charles. you those are lovely words i i appreciate them very much <laughs> we appreciate you charles henry what are some of your proudest moments as a member of the jacob school of music administration well, there are probably too many to really note, uh, and many of them really occurred right here in Bloomington. Uh, but um, for me, just to uh, preface this, uh, uh, Dr. Bain and Dr. Wells certainly uh, made a tremendous infrastructure for the school, and Charles, coming in as dean, I think supplemented it, but it became an awareness, uh, I think, to the remainder of the musical world and the world through performances that we took basically all over the world. And uh, those are the ones that are almost too many to, to talk about, but they did take us to uh, a, a different awareness of our presence as one of the major schools in the world, uh, certainly in the, in the United States, uh, by the fact that we received a number of high ratings and the highest ratings uh, through those years. <clears throat> but part of that, uh, I think, uh, came, of course, from uh, being looked at uh, internally and, and our products as students, but also our products that showed through uh, performances uh, in many places. It, it maybe started uh, with our taking trouble to, in Tahiti of Bernstein uh, to Israel. Uh, that became uh, basically the uh, uh, first act for the opera, Quiet Place, which he finally finished and composed during his stay in Bloomington. Uh, very significant is in 1981, and I attribute this uh, basically to Charles's bravery. Uh, we took five distinct performances to New York City within a short period of time, and uh, I would say at that point we captured uh, the musical capital of, of, Indian, uh, of the United States. We took uh, the Martineau opera, The Greek Passion, to the Metropolitan Opera House. And I will say, uh, I was there and a bit panicked when the curtain went up because I thought, how can these students be brave enough to be in New York on this stage? And I really attribute their bravery at that moment to the fact that we have a musical arts center with a stage that is slightly, slightly by a couple of feet maybe, smaller than the Metropolitan Opera stage. So they felt they were at home when the curtain went up and did a magnificent performance. I was sitting 
beside Mrs. Kazantzakis, whose uh, uh, husband wrote the libretto for the uh, Martin New Opera. And those were high, high moments for me. Uh, in that series of concerts, we took a, a chamber music concert to the uh, Carnegie Recital Hall. We took the IU Philharmonic to Avery Fisher Hall and a choral concert to Abraham Goodman House. And finally, we ended with a concert of the New Music Ensemble. Not so long after that, we gained the uh, attention, I would say, of Leonard Bernstein, and Charles has spoken about that association. But uh, uh, in, in the meantime, I think, prompted by Leonard Bernstein and Harry Kraut, we took uh, uh, orchestras to two separate music festivals in France. We did the Bernstein Mass, uh, which is having a celebration this year, uh, to Tanglewood, where, I've just got to throw this in, Bernstein came to the stage at the end of that performance, that student performance, and said, this is the greatest performance of Mass I've heard. It may be one of the greatest performances I've ever heard. We have, uh, of course, encased that uh, quote. Uh, also, uh, I was there with Mary Winnestrom's husband, Leonard Phillips, when we took the cry of Clytemnestra, one of our own composers, uh, Eaton, to the Moscow State Conservatory. That was a moment of angst sitting right there in the hall where they never really had an opera production and we were doing a full opera production. And then also uh, we later took uh, the Bernstein 1600 Pennsylvania, which opened the Kennedy Center. We took it back to a celebration of the Kennedy Center. Those were notable among the maybe over 1,100 a year, usually. Over 1,100 a year with some of the most notable things we have ever heard. Amazing, amazing. And so, to okay, 11, I, I'm sitting here kind of in shock because the reach of the school in the time frame that you were there was significantly augmented. It was no longer a school that existed in on the Bloomington campus. That's what I was... Yeah. yeah, yeah, it goes all over the planet, yeah. thanks to you. Can I say something about that? Please, please, <laughs> and anything you want to add him, I mean, please. When Dean Webb became dean, um, the faculty thought, although we'd made international trips before that time, and trips even in the United States for our performing ensembles, the faculty thought that there should be a, a major push to go to New York and to try to put us on the map um, in a big way. And at that point, um, a few years um, after Charles became dean, my husband was at the IU Foundation, and uh, there was this, this talk about going to New York that um, Henry has been talking about in April of, of 1981. And there was this idea of going to the Metropolitan Opera, and everybody thought that was really a crazy idea that, I mean, that we couldn't possibly <laughs> just call up and rent the Metropolitan Opera. But it was my husband who actually called um, the Metropolitan Opera <laughs> and, and talked to the staff there. And they said, well, we've never had a student group um, perform on the Metropolitan Opera stage, and it's going to be expensive, um, and it can only be on a Sunday when there aren't any other performances. And uh, so between the foundation and, um, and Dean Webb, this was all sort of negotiated about how we were gonna pay for this <laughs> and how we were gonna pay to transport all these students for a whole week in, in April. And of course, as chair of the theory department, I was um, unhappy that they were gonna be missing classes for a week. And so <laughs> we also had to negotiate <laughs> those activities too. But it, it ended up to be a, a grand success. And um, 
and there were a lot of anxious moments and a lot of very interesting things um, behind the scenes, but it, it took some, some people to, to sort of call and, and move ahead um, before that happened, um, which was certainly one of the highlights of, of my participation with the performance aspect of, of the school. And then the trip to Moscow was certainly a, also a, a very important um, trip because it was reciprocal. They brought um, their um, opera performance here of um, Francesca de Rimini of Rachmaninoff um, and, um, and the Cry of Clytemestra by John Eaton, who was one of our composers. And we did it here with their students, um, who we found out were professionals, basically, <laughs> in many cases. I mean, they've oh. been at the Bolshoi Opera. I mean, it, and our students um, were students, um, real students, real students <laughs> um, who held up very well. Um, and the whole trip to Moscow, which um, I was involved in, along with um, the Webs and the, and the Uppers, um, was was really quite something, and I think it was your relationship with um, Boris um, Kulikov, the, yes. the director of Moscow State Conservatory. Right. That we had been we had been on an international competition jury together. Lev yes, Lev that's where we, we, we met. Lev Lasenko. Lev Lasenko was well. He was the result. Yeah, uh, but he he stayed. Yeah, but Kulikov was, but Kulikov was, was the, the one director. Was yeah. he's the one who made the arrangement? Right, and yeah. uh, we ended up with, um, of course, um, translators and people following us around and in, in um, Moscow, and uh, we had a trip to to Leningrad with the, with the uppers on an overnight train that was quite interesting. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. Come on. <laughs> and we, we saw many, very, very interesting things in what is now St. Petersburg. Um, we happened to run into John Eaton, actually, in the, <laughs> in the Hermitage Museum. <laughs> which was also very interesting. Uh -huh. But it, it was certainly a highlight of, of taking our students around the, around the world, and they, they did an amazing job yes, of, of performing um, not only the opera, but they gave um, concerts in the, in the hall, in the Tchaikovsky Hall. Right. And uh, we had to send people over early um, to help um, some of the performers get John Eaton's techniques down because he was using quarter tone techniques yeah. and using um, different sorts of, of performance mm -hmm. techniques that they had not been exposed no, to. No. And uh, it was it was all around quite an experience, I, I would say. It certainly was. <laughs> and, and having the, the Russians here was also quite an experience because of course um, they were um, completely not used to being able to go to Kmart and buy a lot wow. of, of things, and and they were being housed with very nice volunteers in town who were putting them up, um, and um, they it was quite a, a process of, of acclimation, acclimatization from yeah. from both sides. Right, um, right. And uh, no, they couldn't believe. All the things that went on here, sure. and and all the people who are involved, faculty and students and townspeople. I mean, this this was unheard of in Russia. It, yes. was, it was so much more tightly controlled there uh -huh. than anything yeah. that we did here. And we had a lot of, of people helping with translation. It was was very um, very interesting yeah. too, and so. And of course, we, we had had a big Russian institute here, which helped a lot because um, we called on a lot of those people, including Malcolm Brown, Malcolm who was... I was um, say, Malcolm Brown was a key, key. figure there. Um, who had studied here, actually, um, during the 1950s when he was learning Russian um, to become a... a intelligence uh, <laughs> specialist yeah. in, the, in the military and so um, and then he came back and 
uh, in musicology and, and taught a lot of courses in Russian music. And, uh, so. I, I don't see the natural progression. You're going to have to go in. Well, somebody's going to do a dissertation on that, the connection between the study of Russian language and musicology. <laughs> <laughs> Only teasing Mary. <laughs> <laughs> well, there, there wasn't much connection I at know. that point. <laughs> But but Malcolm was very helpful in translating when the yeah. the Russian students came, or the Russian performers. I mean, they, and the Russian faculty um, came. I mean, they had a Russian conductor, and we had a, a, I have a list of, of the people who came. And, uh, yeah, we have all seen the world end together and shown it to our students. I mean, there there's. Loads of gratitude pouring in your direction every minute. I can only imagine the stories that they're telling their peers, their friends, alumni right now. Some well, good, some bad, all true, yeah, yeah. I'm sure. <laughs> Mary, let's talk a little bit about the study of. We've talked about the performance of, but let's talk about the study of. What are some of the curricular developments that you've been most proud of? The um, performance part of the school, and particularly the opera part of the school, when, when I came, um, was sort of the preeminent um, idea in everybody's mind that this was an opera school and a performance school, and the academic faculty had to sort of struggle to make themselves heard. Um, and we, we tried to struggle to make ourselves heard. And we, we have a very have and still have a very rigorous um, part of all the degree programs being the study of music theory and musicology and um, performance literature. And uh, in the 1960s, several of my music theory colleagues um, produced a whole series of textbooks called The Materials and Structure of Music. And that series of textbooks, which we taught out of for a couple of decades, was very influential um, around the country, actually. Um, Eastman had been sort of the, the main uh, theory school um, up until that time, and uh, they had a whole series of what they called green books, um, and the McCoe's uh, Harmony book was certainly preeminent among them. It's what I studied as a as a um, high school student, actually, with with one of my piano teachers, had me doing Bach chorale harmonizations. But the music theory textbooks from Indiana um, expanded in a couple of important ways. Um, first of all, they expanded beyond just um, the idea of harmony into many other parameters of music, melody and form and um, structure and all kinds of things, um, which students didn't um, often get. Um, they were just taught chorale writing. And then they expanded the whole um, idea of the historical study of music. Um, there were examples in that textbook. In fact, the very first chapter had examples from medieval music and from 20th century music and from um, everything in between, really, uh, which was unusual at that time. And I think um, those those things were important to expand the whole the whole idea of of the study of, of music and not just one narrow um, idea of it. Certainly not as much as as is being done these days. Um, and everybody is criticizing why we aren't expanding yet more um, into non-Western music and into um, particularly women composers and particularly. Um, underrepresented um, people uh, who have contributed to music in various ways, and um, the curriculum is being um, criticized a lot. But the other um, thing that, that Indiana was involved in was something called the Contemporary Music Project in the 1960s, which was um, funded <clears throat> by several national foundations, and schools were chosen around the country to run sort of um, pilot programs on this. And we were chosen to run a program to combine the second year study of music literature with the second year study of music theory. And we also had a very rigorous um, ear training component too and sightseeing component, which other, many other schools um, didn't have. So we ran a, a pilot program and 
it resulted uh, in our developing in the 1970s, and I was certainly a part of this, um, what we called the I curriculum, which was integrated, <laughs> which was integrating um, music theory and music um, history, music literature particularly. So I taught the very first um, I-101, and we had a very ambitious um, idea of trying to get students um, coming in as freshmen to understand the, the range of music over many centuries and to understand a lot of terms about music in, in general and not just do harmony. Part of it worked, part of it didn't work, but we kept revising it, and uh, it's still part of what, what we do in the curriculum even now uh, to study real music and to study music literature and to learn pieces um, besides just, you know, part writing exercises or just exercises in general um, and to study harmony, counterpoint, form as it relates to um, music history, but also as it relates to performance and as it relates to what how you can actually think about and experience um, music. So, I mean, I, I think the, um, the expansion of the curriculum here um, had a, a national um, importance and also um, our, particip our participation in the Contemporary Music Project uh, was important. It, it was um, something that's, that's happened uh, around, the, around the country and we were a big part of it. And we had several faculty members uh, who were very instrumental in, in um, pushing that project um, forward. Uh, we were one of the first places to give a, a doctorate in music theory starting in 1951, um, which was uh, uh, unusual too. I mean, there were only just a very few schools oh, yeah. giving a doctorate in, in music theory. And then... Um, Maybe just three or four. But, right, three or four. Um, <laughs> yeah, Eastman uh, among them, yeah. um, certainly. Um, but uh, certainly none of the conservatories um, were, were doing that kind no. of study. And then, um, of course, uh, we've had a lot of important graduates in both uh, music theory and musicology and composition and, and music education who've been uh, presidents of national organizations who've uh, been really important in, in setting up um, curriculum in, in other schools. And so, I think our influence in the academic field, um, academic fields actually, um, have gone across the country just as much as our performance things have. Um, this is a great segue actually to my next question for you because they, they are everywhere, but everything that you've done, everything that you've all created has benefited our students and ultimately our graduates. So can you sum up where our graduates are today. <laughs> well, our graduates are doing an amazing range of things, which um, I'm very pleased about. Um, actually, um, music education says that every one of their graduates has, is getting a job because they need uh, music education teachers um, so much, and so there's, there's not a problem there. Um, we've been fortunate in, in music theory that... Um, almost every one of our graduates um, have gotten jobs um, either teaching um, or administrating or um, doing other things um, like um, music editing and um, music publishing. But um, particularly, um, I was interested when I went to the NASM, the National Association of Schools of Music, um, conferences that are held every year, which are all the accredited schools in the whole country in the United States. Um, we always have a reception for Indiana University graduates, and uh, we always had at least 30 or 40 people at these gatherings who um, were Indiana University graduates, um, many in music theory um, and some in music history, but some in, in music education, who had very important administrative roles. And so it was, it was great to, to see them in those, those situations. And they always asked about um, people here, of course, I mean. 
And uh, I'm just thinking of, of the people that, that I um, did supervise their dissertations or supervise their master's theses, which I found the other day. I had done something like um, almost 60 master's theses and 14 dissertations. <laughs> and so... And, and so, um, of those people, I mean, um, Ithaca College in, in um, New York was at, at one point called the, called the IU East because um, the dean was Art Ostrander, who was, was one of our music theory graduates, and they had at least um, 10 people on the faculty, in fact, still do, actually, from, from Indiana University. And then... Um, Andrew Davis, who came here um, to get a, a, a doctorate in, in music theory and was the fastest person ever to go through our, our program. He only took two and a half years to, to, to get a, a doctorate. Yeah. He is now, not only um, was he the, the director of the, of the School of, of Music down at, at the University of Houston, but he's now the Dean of the College of Fine Arts um, at University of Houston, which he actually established um, as, as that. Um, that college, and uh, he's now in charge of, of the whole arts program at, at um, Houston. And he was one of my teaching assistants and um, was, was just great in the classroom. And I'll just mention one other person who um, was one of our, our first, and actually, unfortunately, only our, our only woman um, Afro-American um, graduate in music theory. Um, she has a doctorate in music theory from here, and I actually recruited her here because um, she was from um, she was from Indiana, but she was um, interested in particularly the Afro-American studies program um, in addition to the theory program. And Teresa Reed, uh, Teresa Shelton, as she was at that point. Um, came here and got a doctorate in, um, in music theory, um, did a dissertation on Florence Price, who's very um, in these days as far as um, uh, people performing her music and um, um, studying her, her music. And Teresa went back to um, the University of, of Tulsa, um, where she was um, an associate dean and was director of Afro-American studies down there and was um, very influential in the, in the music program down there and taught music theory and would call me regularly about her freshman theory class. <laughs> and right now she's um, dean of the University of Louisville School of Music. <laughs> and so, so um, those are sort of um, illustrations of the kind of trajectory that many of our graduates have had. Um, so let's have a little bit of a chuckle here. I'm sure you've all been witness to some serious, let's just call it Jacob's hilarity. What are some of the funny stories that you can now share, G-rated, of course, please, that you are, now that you are happily retired? Well, I, I can just start off by saying that one of our funniest um, things was when we had the April Fools concerts. Uh, there were a whole series of those over over several years, um, where the faculty and students would do funny things in the in the manner of PDQ Bach and whatever. And I remember Charles and Henry doing a tutu um, number here. <laughs> on the, Please tell me you still have them. The, <laughs> the four little ballerinas. I outgrew mine. <laughs> doing the little swan um, dance. For, <laughs> going down the aisles of the Musical Arts Center. Um, and we had um, all kinds of interesting... Uh, instrumental arrangements and multiple piano performances and um, we had a, a great moderator for quite a while um, George Wilson who was an organ faculty yeah. member and he used to be the MC and tell all kinds of, of interesting things um, the, the one I remember was when he decided that there were so many performances here that on recital hall stage, we should divide it up into um, cubicles with um, plexiglass in between them, which is sort of what we're doing now with the pandemic um, here. <laughs> <laughs> and the audience would have listening 
earphones and could dial from recital to recital so that you could do at least five or six of them simultaneously. <laughs> Mary, don't pass by George Wilson without also noting that uh, you did a dance under the title of Bubbles, which was sort of lascivious little dance. And we had you come back for encores of that little dance. Well, I did because uh, the, the theory faculty, in addition to producing textbooks, um, also wrote scripts and, um, and were also, uh, a couple of them, uh, played in, in jazz bands and um, they could do backbeat um, numbers very nicely. And so um, there was a big controversy on the campus about women having access to the sauna in the, in the hyper building, in the... In the um, <laughs> the what the men had access to but the women didn't and so that was the, the focus of this particular script on this this day and so I had to wear a bathing suit and um, <laughs> toss things off. Um, it was like your own Dance of the Seven Veils? It was my Dance of the Seven Veils and I remember one of my friends who was a jazz major was sitting in the second row and instead of saying Take it off, take it off. He said, put it on, put it on. <laughs> okay, so my fellow alumni who are listening to this, the rumors are true. Your nickname was Bubbles. <laughs> That's right, and it got written up in the Daily Student, and I got a letter from the president, um, John Ryan, at that point, um, who congratulated me on my <laughs> on my performances, Bubbles. <laughs> This is when I was young and could move around. <laughs> okay, okay, Henry, same question, because I think that Henry's goes nicely into Charles. Well, what I really uh, uh, remember is something very fun, and uh, I will preface all of this by saying that uh, uh, Charles and I could probably tell quite a few things that really can't be told until we're uh, rather long gone uh, because we uh, were in that dean's office for many, many years hearing a lot of things. But uh, one that, that comes to my memory that uh, I thought was just really fun uh, and uh, harassment to the dean's office as well, and that is... Uh, we dedicated the first Caroline Tower. We have another Caroline Tower now that we've just dedicated, but we dedicated the first one that was placed very near uh, the married housing units and very near uh, some of the other dormitory units uh, of IU. And uh, everything was going fine with the Caroline until the Carolineer who dedicated this uh, left the country uh, and put the carillon on automatic play and it malfunctioned in the middle of the night and it began to play a mighty fortress is our god and for four to five hours it played this and by the time it became about eight o'clock in the morning and our offices opened Charles's line was completely covered up by distraught parents whose children were kept up all night by a mighty fortress and a lot of other very distraught people who just felt a mighty fortress in its 33rd time might be a bit too much. Well, let's, let's say that when this particular distraught faculty member came into my office, Mary Patterson. Oh, Mary Patterson. Mary Patterson came right. into my office and said, there's a man out here who is very, very upset. I don't know if you want to see him. I said, oh, I'll see him. So he came in, and I'll never forget, his very first comment was, I am a Catholic. <laughs> no, okay. I'm a Methodist. <laughs> We're all belonging to something. And then he said, for four hours, my family and me have been totally engulfed in hearing nothing but Martin Luther's hymn. 
a mighty fortress is our God, and how much longer are we going to have to be subjected to this? <laughs> oh, well, I don't know. We'll see what we can do. But anyway, of course, I got it turned off, and, and it didn't come back on again, but it was, uh, that was a an incident that we don't forget. <laughs> you you oh. figured out how many times you could hear that piece. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, a theological it, objection it, instead of a noise objection. Yeah. <laughs> it, it reminds me of one other thing. It's, Caroline uh, brought on uh, quite a few calls to the dean's office. We have also a practice Caroline on the uh, top of the music annex. And it happens to be on the same sound level of... Uh, one of the top offices or one of the top floors of Ballantyne Hall. And Charles received calls from a number of professors through the years. Uh, I don't think Ballantyne was air conditioned at that moment and received calls saying, could you turn that Caroline off? It is driving us crazy in our offices. There will be one unknown professor whose uh, call came almost daily. There was one that you shared when we were off, off air, and it had to do with a faculty member who, he was so committed to his craft that brought his instrument to prison? Oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes, well, uh, we had a harp teacher who <laughs> was, uh, I'll say, infamously known, <laughs> and... Uh, he had lived in Chicago before he came to Bloomington as a faculty member in harp. And uh, so he was brought to trial for income tax evasion. And they determined that, uh, yes, he had done this. And so uh, Dean Bain came into my office one day and said, we need to talk about Peter because he has been now indicted for income tax evasion. They're talking about putting him in prison. And uh, we won't have a harp teacher. <laughs> and we, we need a harp teacher. And won't you go and talk to them? So, oh, yes, okay, yeah, well, I explained the situation. And lo and behold, they were willing to let him take his harp to prison so he could practice and also play for the, the students involved. And so we had Peter and the harp in the prison, and that was a, a, a major event for us. I, I have to say, I'm sure if the walls of the school could talk... Oh. Be, beware. Yeah, yeah. right. I don't know what the next hundred years would have to say. <laughs> um, we were talking earlier about, you know, the way the school has influenced the profession. We talked about some of our alumni. You know, it's, it's kind of hard to say. It's kind of hard to name it all, right? It's kind of like talking about which is your favorite breath of air. <laughs> this one and the next one and the several after it, hopefully, right? But if there were, if there were a way to sort of encapsulate the alumni, like how, how would you describe the school's impression on the profession? Where are we? I think Mary speaking earlier about the academic component and how it has become strong in itself and strong as, in a way, a service to a performance-oriented school but not really uh, uh, an auxiliary in that respect, a very integral part of it. I think in putting together a degree program that we hope produces a great performing, but a great thinking performing musician, a great performing, a performer who is aware of what they are doing in the, in the score. Uh, I think that is our attempt, and what that has done, from my perspective, and I haven't done a lot of research on this, but from my perspective, first of all, it caused a lot of 
conservatories to look at the possibility of some way granting degrees. But it also made, I think, all of the schools that were uh, training performers to think about what Indiana is doing. And I think that's been our major influence in the whole field of music, mm -hmm. to make an integrated musician. I think that's beautifully said. We truly are everywhere. We're in every orchestra. Mm -hmm. We're in every, yeah. every choir. We're in every major performance venue. We're, we're everywhere. Well, and we did embrace the idea that it is all, it's not just the study of technique because so many people have in mind, oh, if I can just play those scales, if I can just do the arpeggios, if I, uh, then I will have conquered the instrument. And our belief that it was a, a true amalgamation of, yes, the study of technique and all of those facets that go into performance itself, but also underpinned by a strong historical both interest and projection so that uh, it, it became a real part of our, our school, not just an auxiliary, not just a, a, a happy thing, you know. It yeah, I, I, I'd like to, to echo that, um, Charles, and say that, you know, many people talk about um, theory and musicology as being service to performance, but I mean, we viewed it as being really an, an integral, integral part of it. And I think, I mean, I think we must mention um, something like the library too, um, and, and the whole research component, because even in the performance degrees um, from early on, I remember when Sidney Foster was was proposing a, a doctorate in, in piano, I mean, he picked up on what musicology and music theory had, and that was writing a, a serious research paper as right. sort of justifying the, the, the an academic degree and not just a, a performance degree. Right. And um, I mean, our music library as a, as a research um, institution, and in fact, many of the projects of, of the academic faculty in, in general, I mean, um, like the, like the um, databases that we've, we've had that have been set up um, here are major contributions across the country. Um, and the idea that we had digitized um, not only our, our holdings, um, but you know, had, had, a, had one of the best research collections in the whole country in, in music um, right. um, has, has put us um, very much on the forefront of, of people who want to do serious study in, in those areas too. Um, and as I said, uh, I mean, to put that into, to um, actually even all of our degree requirements is, is I think a, a major part of what, what we're right. doing. That's our show. Special thanks to Melissa Dixon and our guests, Charles Webb, Henry Upper, and Mary Wennerstrom. For Reminiscing in Time, I'm John Christopher Porter. Thanks for listening. Take care of yourselves and each other. Wear your masks and be safe. Our theme music, Danabar, is by Luke Gillespie and performed by the composer and members of the IU Jazz Studies faculty on the album Moving Mists from Patois Records. The Reminiscing in Time podcast is produced by the Indiana University Jacob School of Music. Find us on Spotify, social media, or music.indiana.edu. Mm -hmm.